A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 209 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the Bipolars. Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman, and with me like Master Snide's need to keep the Imperial Knights in line with the light side of the Force, the EU guru himself, the Count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Hey, hey, everybody. That guy just really, really likes the fish people. Master Sid just really, really likes the fish people. He's a fan of Kamari. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> it's some tartar sauce, right? Um... So it's been an interesting weekend, I guess, around here. We're finally on Thanksgiving break for us. Uh, I've been running through some RPG material from Endless Vigil, trying to get that on the timeline. Um, And more importantly, of course, playing a whole lot of Battlefront because they had a 4X as opposed to 2X quadruple points weekend here. Uh, finally got up to level 90 and all that kind of stuff. Uh, grinding, but it actually felt like what a double points weekend should feel like, because double feels like what normal should feel like, and normal feels like a snail's pace, which I'm sure we've gone into before. <laughs> um, but between that and uh, reading some Catalyst, it's been a interesting Star Wars-y kind of weekend. You know, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I didn't play as much. I only got up to level 52, and I was at 49 when the weekend started, so... Kind of sad on my part. Uh, I, too, I, I got Catalyst. I haven't got very deep into it. I've really enjoyed the design and layout of that book. Like, there is just something about the the elegance of the way that they have set together all the way up through the first chapter. You know, you got the, the black pages on each side where it says Star Wars in big white letters. You got some Starfield shots, like schematics of the Death Star. They really put their time in on this one, and I really appreciate that. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, of course, they also have the Barnes & Noble Special Edition that has a fold-out poster that by itself is... I think so far it's the most lackluster of the ones we've gotten. It's basically just, hey, it's the Death Star. You turn it over, hey, it's the Death Star with the super laser and stuff highlighted. Ooh, it just, it, I don't, it hasn't reached out and grabbed me. But of course, I wind up having to have two copies for that. And actually, I guess I should say three copies. Because again, Del Rey is sending out review copies of many of the recent books. But for some reason, they're sending out the review copies. So they arrive on the same day that it actually is released. They're not doing this pre-release stuff or after release, as the case may be. That's my case. So, yeah, I I happen to have gotten my regular copy a day early, along with the the Collector's Edition 3D version of The Force Awakens. Um, Got both of those a day early because I ordered from Amazon Prime, and they happened to just arrive on that Monday instead of Tuesday. And sure enough, the same day, here's a package from Del Rey that's, ta-da, here's a final copy of Catalyst. 
which is not nearly early enough to let you have a review ready on release day, which is kind of the point of sending you early review copies. I, I just don't quite get why they've shifted to the, this timing on the release copies or the uh, review copies, but whatever, still nice to be able to get them. But what it means is that I've wound up with an extra copy of Catalyst. So we want to do a giveaway here. If you are interested in winning a hardback copy of Rogue One Catalyst by James Lucino, it's very simple. Send an email to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Put Catalyst in the subject line. In the body of the email, put your mailing address just in case you win. Get your entry in by the day of Rogue One's official release, at least, which is 1216. On 1217, I'll be drawing a winner so we can get that package ready to ship. All right. Can't go wrong with a little catalyst. The essential Rogue One read. You'll find out how essential once you get it in your hands and get it cracked open and read. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore Star Wars Legacy Volume 9, Monsters, by John Ostrander. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick, spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Waylon is a once-fertile world transformed by alien biotechnology into a monstrous living nightmare. The planet was the scene of Cole Skywalker's worst failure and his son Cade's first brush with death. Now, Cade and his friends have been lured back to Wayland, where a deadly secret festers and a life-changing decision awaits Cade. Yes, this is basically the penultimate, that is, second-to-last arc, or second-to-last trade paperback, I guess you'd say, in the regular Legacy Volume 1 series, though of course it'd be followed by Legacy War, so in essence there, including this one, are three left, not just two left, to finish out the story of Legacy Volume 1. And this one feels like it's a lot of setup and more explanations, more flashbacks to certain things that are leading us toward that final arc. Uh, it in and of itself does have some good character development for Cade, I thought that that was well handled here, and it does sort of push our factions that are against the Sith, that is, the Jedi, the Alliance Remnant, and, of course, uh, Emperor Rowan Fell's version of the Empire out of Bastion, sort of pushes them closer and closer into a true alliance rather than just sort of, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing, but an actual true alliance against the Sith, again, to set up what's going to be able to wrap up all these storylines in the coming pair of arcs. It's by John Ostrander as far as writing, story, uh, also credit goes to Jan Dersima, and you've got Jan Dersima doing the art, of course, on the issues, the monster issues, which are issues 43 to 46, which actually deal with Cade and company, and you've got Dave Ross doing the pencils on issue number 42, which is Divided Loyalties, which is, again, another of these separate tales that tie into the broader structure, but which doesn't feature Cade and crew, so it can wind up having a different Artists. I still find that a really cool thing about Legacy, where they kept the Cade issues to Dursima and then brought in other artists to handle the other stories so that it wound up having a consistent feel anytime we saw Cade. Mm -hmm. I like this one. Uh, it's cool to see certain Yuzhan Vong technology, or whatever you want to call it, uh, biotechnology, 
actually in action in a more specific, clear way in these comics. And it's cool to see Cade finally come to a decision we all kind of knew he was going to, or a couple of decisions we all kind of knew he was going to. Meanwhile, I gotta say that learning more and more and more in small doses about what happened to precipitate things like the OSIS project and how it all fell apart and how it was sabotaged is nice to see because a lot of what we get, except for a couple of stories that were actual flashback stories as a whole, it's usually just these little flashback glimpses that we get and those glimpses fill in the universe in that gap between what we got back with Crucible and what we eventually got with Legacy. So definitely an important one to the overall grand scheme of things for Legacy, but it does feel like there's a lot of buildup here to what's coming later, more so than this being a standalone story. If you haven't read the stuff before this or after this, I'm not sure that this is going to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, there's a lot of meat to this addition to the saga, that's that's for sure. And the real buildup does begin here, but I'm in the same boat. I, I don't know if this would be one you would definitely want to grab and read only by itself. I think... There's just, you know, not enough. Like, like maybe, maybe it would work in the aspect of how Lucas was trying to do red tails and grab a slice from the middle, but I don't know. I mean, this one has a lot more disposition than any of the others that we've got to this point. I feel like it's really setting up, you know, where the Jedi are at, where the Imperial Knights are at, how willing they are to work with each other, the, the, the recognition of the fact that the Sith are such a threat. Uh, you know, it's that culmination of so much that they've worked for for so long in the realm of what's going on with the greater galaxy. When it comes to Cade and company, it's a much more personal story still. And I like that. I like when we shift the focus to Cole Skywalker, uh, Nyaxi, when we find out what's going on with, with Cole's mom or Cade's mom, Morgan Cord. That whole background and stuff, I found it very intriguing. Uh, but there were times where when it came to like the Imperial side of things, what, what Moorish was doing, uh, I, I, Veed was just not a character I really cared for that much. I was kept, kept hoping that there was going to be more to him aside from him being tangled in this web between Nixie and him or Nyax and him. I, I'm not exactly sure how we're supposed to say her name. I wish we had audiobooks for comics in that regard. Uh, I also liked how Master Snide, you know, he's like, he's trying to be the moral compass for the Imperial Knights, reminding them that their oath is not just to the Emperor. That the oath is also that the Emperor is supposed to be personifying their connection to the Force. And, you know, he's noticed that, you know, Emperor Fell is not always doing that. And I like the conflict there as to whether or not he needs to be, you know, in the in the front lines fighting this battle or should he be the guy that is training the next generation that's going to take up the fight uh you know there's a conflict there that goes back and forth that i like a lot uh but again getting back to Waylon, like there was so much there that i didn't realize i wanted to know and then as it started playing i just i kept drinking it in i wanted to know more i wanted to know more what was going on with uh qua the the bad Vong that never surrendered death before dishonor like that guy was totally nuts but he personified everything I imagined a Vong from the new Jedi Order era to be and that basically was what he was he was someone still hung up on that loss he wasn't willing to give up he was still fighting and it's it's the most beautiful part about the lie of what the Sith did because you know they were blaming the Jedi, and they were saying, oh, well, the Vong did it, and the Jedi were like, no, it wasn't the Vong, but it was the Vong. It was the Vong that was working for the Sith with Malady, which was just terrible in and of itself for Cole Skywalker, the Jedi, and the galaxy at large. So there were a lot of interesting things that came forth in this episode, in this issue, that I didn't recognize 
immediately is going to be something that I was going to get such a kick out of until I was in the middle of it. I was like, oh, okay. But I get back to Morgan Cord, and there's just still so much about her that just perplexes and confuses the ever-living Sith out of me. We will get confirmation here about Cord, though, and in terms of which of the two personas came first, which is something I'd actually forgotten. So I took the time to ask Jan Dersima about it recently, and she confirmed what turns out the comic had already confirmed and I had forgotten. So... Uh, we'll get into that as we get through our uh, spoiler territory. Indeed. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of all ages. Because here we go on another adventure... Beyond the films. Yeah, so let's tackle divided loyalties first. It is the first issue here, and chronologically does come first, as opposed to a lot of these trade paperbacks where it seems like stories are happening on top of each other. And we have the Jedi sending a detachment of four Jedi to go out and meet with Gar Stasi aboard his flagship, the Alliance. And we wind up meeting Te Corso, Sayar Dunla, Asak Dan and Drak, who are the four Jedi who are there to visit. And we also, of course, have Gar Stasi there, Joram Bey, his second-in-command, who used to lead Rogue Squadron, and Lieutenant Ona Antilles, all present. As is Sigil Dare, right? The Imperial Knight. And she wants to get the heck out of there, wants to go back to Dak in order to recover uh, Trey Sind, who, of course, we saw back in some previous issues, had decided to essentially disobey Rowanfell's orders and find an excuse to stay behind because he wanted to help the Mon Calamari resistance against the Sith and help the refugees who were there. Sind has stayed behind, Dare wants to go and get him, and they decide to send Asak Dan, the Jedi, the Togruta Jedi, to essentially accompany her on a ship borrowed from the Alliance Remnant. So we have all the different factions sort of represented here on this mission to go get him. They do wind up finding him, only he doesn't want to go. And Sigil tries to force him to. A lightsaber duel between former master and apprentice essentially ensues until Dan steps in and says, Whoa, hello dudes. Um, why don't I just stay and take Sin's place and help the Mon Calamari so he can go back and fulfill his duty to the Empire, whether it's training or fighting alongside Rowanfell, whichever Fell decides is appropriate at this point. Uh, why don't we just use that solution because it winds up serving everyone? So, Sind is finally heading back into the Imperial Fold, or you might say further back into the Imperial Fold, and now we have a Jedi present on Dak. Meanwhile, back at the fleet, there is a... a what, what was his rank. They called him, I guess, a shipman. A Tealart, who is a Mon Calamari, and amid a Sith Imperial attack against the Alliance ships, Tealart pulls a blaster and shoots Gar Stasi in the back. And we essentially have the story of Joram Bey having to go up against Imperials, the evil Imperials, the Sith Imperials, led by Cryon Grail from his ship, the Marauder, that are able to track basically communications array issues on the Alliance, uh, the ship called the Alliance, in order to constantly track them through space and even through hyperspace. But thankfully, they are able to save Garstazi's life. He knows how they're being tracked and is able to inform the others so that they can set their own trap and knock out Creon. And we get a poignant scene in the end 
where an injured but healing Garstazi visits Tealart in his cell one week later in the Alliance's brig. And Tealart reveals that the Sith Imperials that are on deck have gotten a hold of his family. And essentially, maybe they're already dead, maybe they're not. But they're using their safety as leverage over Tealart, which is how they got him to attack and try to assassinate Stasi. And Stasi is basically willing to get those on deck, that he, his agents there, the rangers and such, uh, that are working with the Alliance, to try to protect and try to go after Tealart's family if they are indeed being held. But Tealart himself is a traitor regardless of why he did what he did. An example must be made. He can be forgiven personally by Stasi, but he must still be tried, found guilty, and executed. And Tealart understands this and thanks Stasi for being willing to protect his family. So a relatively small story kind of encapsulated here just in the one issue, but we move Trace Sind to a new location and Sigildare is going to go with him. We move a Jedi onto Dak. We get echoes of what's happening on Dak. And again, we see the Jedi and Gar Stasi's Alliance Remnant working more closely together, which is all pushing us towards final confrontations. Boy, and Stasi took one heck of a hit. Like, at one moment, I thought for sure he was dead. It was like, it looked like a giant bowling ball-sized hole in his back. I'm like, oh my lord. And, and I love that moment that you talked about where, where Gar and uh, Tymon, or whatever his name was, uh, Teleart, uh, when they're in there, the, the look on Tellart's face, like, you know, he looks like, oh my God, I'm just so screwed up. I don't know what to do. You see the desperation there. And then, of course, you know, the dialogue gives it everything you need to know as to why he looks so terrified. But but I think that that's a, another one of those testaments to Garstasi. I mean, there's the type of character I would love to see them bring forward into canon. I mean, it doesn't have to be this guy, but just someone with a similar kind of background, similar kind of demeanor. Uh, when, when Stasi figured out what was going on and he explained it to, to, uh, Garam or, uh, Gamora, I didn't understand what the heck to he, who Jor- you talking about Joram. Yeah. Joram. Yeah. When he, when he got it to Joram, I didn't understand at all. What in the hell he had figured out like that confused the living hell out of me. What exactly was it? that they were tracking on the ship. Some type of frequency vibration in the communications array, which I felt like it was just sort of a convenient thing to allow them to be tracked to give this sense of of peril to the ship, because why wasn't that being tracked before? Was it sabotage or something recent versus just a natural anomaly? And... If that's something that's so easily tracked, why isn't that seen more often? It felt like it was just sort of a, well, we need a reason for them to be tracked. Yeah, that's what will make it. And Stasi somehow knew about it, but hadn't had it fixed yet or something. How does he know on his supposed almost deathbed and is able to tell them, hey, fix this because we're being tracked. But he didn't know to fix it before. Was he trying to lure the Sith Imperials into a trap with it or something or was it just a i recognized a problem and it's only when i'm we're being attacked that i realized oh crap it would allow us to be tracked it's i don't know that was a very convenient piece of this story that kind of sat oddly with me i mean it's not really the core of the story it's just something that helps explain why the empire is able to go after them but you would have think you would have thought something like maybe t 
putting a tracking device or something or finding out that he had somehow messed with the communications thing to start the vibrations would have been dropped into the story as a way to make it feel more believable yeah and that was kind of like you know and all of a sudden the the whole fleet jumps on top of him i'm like wow that was a sudden reversal of fortune it felt like the end of the new jedi order series when all of a sudden the vong that were so impossible to shoot down are being blasted by every second blast bolt like what the hell what happened that i don't know what's going on here all of a sudden the good guys are everywhere we were just losing i mean i was so confused in that moment you know you mentioned the fact that we see uh uh, master uh he's kind of leaving there was a great interaction there between the princess and him when she's like, Master Snide, you will obey his Imperial Highness. Don't start with me, Sigil. I was the one who taught you how to use that lightsaber. Perhaps you taught me, Master Sind. But in our last several practice rounds, I surpassed you. You will return with me or you will die here. You have a duty to the Emperor. And, you know, he's just getting ready to... I love the, the pose he's got. Like, his lightsaber's in a guard position, deactivated, and he's got his fingers up like he's about to do a force push or something. Like, he's prepared for anything. And he goes, Our duty is to the Force as embodied by the Emperor. That's what all of you young knights seem to have forgotten. With the usurper on the throne, a knight's duty must be a matter of personal loyalty to his imperial majesty. And they're crossed up at this time in the middle. They're full on battling at that. That's not what an imperial knight is meant to do or be. And it continues on. And at this point, this is when Master Dan jumps in. I'm sorry, but this seems so wrong. And she's like, you dare. Ah! She swings over his head. He ducks. Now you're no longer fighting each other. May I suggest an alternative to your current solution? And she jumps over his head, stabbing down at him. No, I was merely being polite, Master Dan continues. Actually, I agree with Master Dare. If you truly believe, Master Sin, that the young knights are losing focus, then the Force needs you and Bastin to teach them. He knocks both of them on the ground at this point. If the Mon Calamari Rangers feel I would be of use, then I volunteer to take Master Snide's place with them. Or we can all stay here and keep up this foolishness and probably get captured or kill. And I think that, you know, there's the heart of something there that I was waiting for that this series promised in Legends that we never got the answer to. And it was, what are the Imperial Knights supposed to be? And Master Sind is really the only point of view that gives us what that was. You know, I mean, if it wasn't for him, if you took that character out, we would really have no clue what in the hell Imperial Knight is, what their function was, or anything like that. And as a long-term Legends fan, I was always waiting to find out, was it Jaina? Was Jaina the one that did all of it? Was, you know, when when all the events that were going on in the books and we got to uh, Legacy of the Force and Fate of the Jedi and stuff, there was a moment where I was like, oh, maybe Karan Horn's done with the, the Alliance, and maybe he walks off and he joins Jaina over in the Imperial remnant and he's the one that starts it i mean there's no actual concrete as to who founded the imperial knights it's just left for us to just assume we know it had hand to hand with the first emperor fell which we're assuming okay well maybe that's like you know the first lady kind of thing this was jana's thing but we there's none of that information and this is one of those comics that really gets to that and it whets my appetite for more and granted we just don't get it i i always wanted to know more i thought the imperial knights were a wonderful concept and i really wanted to see how they were created i kept hoping after crucible that that was what we were going to get in the Janus solo sort of the jedi books but it never came i keep hoping maybe we'll get that continue legends but now is not that time i do like the fact that we're sort of moving the pieces around the board you can feel that things are kind of coming to a head because the jedi have already made their contact with Garstazi, uh, and, and we've got that connection going. We've got the whole connection of the uh, Rowan Fells Imperials with Stasi, 
Uh, we've seen Jedi in play. We've seen the Imperial Knights in play. It's sort of all this moving all the pieces together so they're actually more of a, of a unified whole. And in this case, that's sort of set as part of the backdrop to what's going on with the main story being pretty straightforward, right? Just the traitor who's being manipulated, who winds up trying to kill the leader, and the leader comes out okay. Yeah, whatever. You know, kind of straightforward stuff. But it's cool to see Jorambe, who was fine leading Rogue Squadron, having doubts about his ability to command the entire fleet or the fleet that is there and the idea that, you know, regardless of how he feels about his position, he must project strength and calm. He must project confidence in order to keep the people within the fleet confident. Uh, and I do like, as you were saying, you know, Stasi as a character here and the way he handles things there at the end. So, you know, we are in contact with the Rangers on deck. I'll ask them to do what they can for your family. You will be court-martialed, found guilty, and executed. I understand divided loyalties, but your actions cost ships and lives and could have destroyed the fleet. An example must be made. For my part, you are forgiven, but not excused. And he responds, you know, I understand, Admiral, and thank you. I think that is my favorite moment of the entire issue, because what we're dealing with here is Stasi sort of at the point where he, there's the personal, which is understanding on an empathic level, what Tealart was going through, understanding why he did what he did and being willing to forgive him for that. But at the same time, as a leader, he simply can't let it go because he knows what it could perpetuate within the fleet and the image that it could send and what it could spawn in other people trying to do the same thing. So he has to go ahead with an execution. Uh, I like the fact that we have that dichotomy in the Gar Stasi character, who for the most part started out very single-minded and didn't seem like he was going to be able to get as much character depth as he has gotten uh, over the course of the series. That brings us to Monster, which is four issues here, 43 through 46. I'll hit them kind of in general summaries of each issue because a lot of things are going on at different places as opposed to it all being just one continuous story of one group of characters. We start with a flashback. We see the planet of Wayland, and we learn that it was one of the first places, in fact, the first place, I believe, where Nairin, the Yuzhanbong Shaper, worked with Cole Skywalker and the Jedi on the so-called Osis Project to basically terraform, use Vong technology to terraform a planet, and instead of devastating it, essentially fix devastation that had already happened to it in order to make it lush and livable again, in this case for the local uh, Minerishi, which is one of the few groups who have actually bothered to stay on Wayland after everything that happened. But this is where things went wrong. Uh, one of the first places, if not the first place, I believe it's the first place, where things went wrong, where some type of other Vong poisoning of the atmosphere, poisoning of uh, this terraforming project, led to horrible results and Vong shaping, Vong spawn of Minerishi, where basically it was affecting everyone but seemingly the Jedi, who were human, and the Nay Ne Ren and the Yuzhan Vong who were there, suggesting that this was all a plot by the Jedi and the Yuzhan Vong, that they're in league and this is all, you know, meant to destroy the Minorishi and others. Essentially, the moment in which the Osis project goes bad, Cole Skywalker sees what is happening and swears that he's going to find some way to fix what had gone wrong. Of course, that incident is what's going to eventually help lead to the war. Uh, that has led to where we are in this era entirely. We jump back and we find ourselves at the Hidden Temple briefly, where Wolf Sazen basically tells Shado Val he is feeling drawn to Wayland. He's feeling drawn to a place where he can help 
Cade, Cade Skywalker, that is, and he's going regardless of what anyone else thinks, even though there is a special meeting coming very soon between Rowan Fell's Imperials and the Jedi on Agamar that is meant to help solidify that relationship. Wolf will not be there. He and his new cybernetic arm, he is heading out to go try to help Cade. Cade, meanwhile, is on Zeltros with Jewel, you know, Jewel, the very unusual <laughs> hut, and they're just basically hanging out, enjoying themselves, but Rav shows up and offers a job to have Cade's crew go to Wayland for a million credits minus a 20% cut and go after a particular target that's there. Uh, turns out, of course, it will be a trap set by the Sith through Rav uh, to try to take out Cade and basically bring Cade into Malady's clutches. But to start with, at least, it looks like they're taking a job for Rav. We also find that the Imperials know about the upcoming meeting on Agamar through a source that Moff Morlishveed, or I guess Regent now, Morlishveed, won't even identify to Nina Calixta, his closest ally and lover, who of course is also Morrigan Cord, Cade's mother. Uh, she is finally going to have to do something more overt to help the enemies of the Sith Empire, or the Sith Imperials, in order to keep the leaders of the Alliance uh, or the leaders of this new alliance, not alliance with a capital A, but lowercase alliance, the Jedi uh, and Rowan Fell's Imperials, from being completely wiped out and the galaxy entirely being in the grip of the Sith. We also find out that on Bastion, Aslan Ray, who we last saw as sort of a cybernetic individual with that suit on that was pumping back to Indra's system to keep her alive after what happened back uh, in Vector, is now back with the Imperial Knights, as we saw before, but she has a new suit put together by a new armorer, or a master armorer that we've met, uh, Hogram Chalk, who is a former Imperial Knight who now is like an engineer after getting battle injuries and whatnot, creating new technologies for the Imperial Knights. We get some brief, brief instances, flashback-wise, of seeing how, after what happened on Wayland, uh, Cole Skywalker's ship bearing Wolf and Cole and Shado and Cade was actually brought aboard Nina Calixta's ship and it gave Cole a chance to see her for the first time in a while and this is where thanks to their conversation we get a sense that oh okay Morrigan Cord was the original individual Nina Calixta is a persona she has created to change her circumstances and the life that she's living at that point so in essence uh, we now at least know where the original point was uh, of that character, that it was Morgan Cord that came first, as opposed to, you know, the whole chicken and the egg argument of trying to figure it out. But we don't exactly know necessarily the circumstances of why she took on the Nina persona. That jumps us into issue number two, where we meet Yuzhan Vong Shaper, uh, Zul, what is it, Zetek Kwa, or Zenok Kwa, who has chosen to stick with the old lifestyle of the Yuzhan Vong rather than joining the ones on Sonama Seacott, which, by the way, fled at the beginning of the war. He's actually been in league with the Sith. It was him, according to him, who actually did the poisoning of the Osis project to start the ball rolling on all the chaos, though Malady will be shown to be behind it. So it seems like Darth Malady and, and Qua were working together relatively early on. The Minot crew, that is Jiraiya Sin, Delia Blue, and Cade wind up on Wayland fighting various creatures and such that are there. And after a particularly intense battle, Delia is carried off. Jiraiya winds up being found and saved by a woman who is a descendant of the Jedi, but not a Jedi herself, from Tsunami Seacott, Fiona T, who winds up working with Jiraiya to try to save the others, and Cade winds up waking up alone and leaving the area before Fiona can come back and save him, or at least help him. We also find that Gunnar Yeag, of course, uh, the half-sister of 
of Cade is among the Imperial Starfighter pilots that are there for the attack on Agamar, except they're having to work under the Sith, taking Sith orders rather than being able to call their own shots uh, and really just act as pure Imperials as opposed to Sith Imperials, which isn't sitting with her right, nor is the fact that now she knows that Nina Calixta and Morgan Cord are the same person, and she even winds up asking her father uh, for some advice, not necessarily uh, revealing anything, but, you know, what if you know something about someone that could be irrevocable if revealed, etc., etc. We find that Sind is back with Rowan Fell and will be accompanying him to Agamar. They train and they have a conversation about, among other things, how he was willing to use the mirror talisman back in Vector and how, no, you have to be an embodiment of the light. You cannot fall because you're the guiding source uh, for the Imperial Knights, etc., etc. And we see Jiraiya loading himself up with... Uh, an Amphistaff, so they can go and try to rescue Cade and Deliah. And we find that Nina is trying, in a separate little small starfighter that she's taken off in, trying to get far enough away from Imperial comlines that she can actually warn the good guys about what's about to happen at Agamar. But she's having terrible luck in doing so because of all the monitoring of transmissions. That moves us to part three, where we find that uh, Malady is working with Darth Nil and Qua right there on Wayland. And there's some thought that it looks like there's some fractioning or, or, or factioning going on within the Sith Empire because Malady believes that Krayt is probably actually dead and that Weirlock is just lying about him still being alive and in stasis in order to shore up his power and isn't quite sure if Weirlock would still allow Malady to be around and since he also presumably would see Nil as a possible rival to his power, Malady and Nil decide they're going to team up to shore up their position, find out the true state of Krayt, and prepare themselves just in case uh, Weirlock makes a move against them. Cade winds up finding Delia, and she is in the Embrace of Pain, that Yuzhan Vong torture device being held by Malady and Qua, and she has these Yuzhan Vong things implanted in her back that when Cade tries to use the dark side lightning thing that heals to help her by going after the shatter point and whatnot, all it seems to do is make it angrier and stronger. So there's a question of whether or not his abilities are going to be able to save her. And that's exactly what Malady wants. Malady has created this powerful thing. She's concerned that the Sith may turn on each other and turn on her, and she needs a weapon to be able to use against not just Jedi and others, but also against the Sith. But she can't test it on a Sith to see whether or not a Sith could use the dark side to free themselves from this thing that she's put onto Delia, because that would reveal her intentions if she did it on a strong enough Sith to make it matter. Do it on a weak Sith, and that may give her results, but who knows how it would work against stronger Sith. She needs someone strong and able to tap into the dark side, but that won't be missed and won't be recognized by other Sith. So why not draw Kate in. That's why she's captured Delia, why she hired Rav to bring them to Wayland in the first place. And basically, Kate is given the choice, look, either Qua can kill her, torture her through the embrace of pain and then kill her, or you can save her, even though he doesn't think he can because his first attempt to do so just caused her more pain and didn't work. He is faced with sort of an impossible choice. Meanwhile, on Agamar, the Imperial group, that is Rowan Fell's Imperial group, the uh, Loyalist group, and the Jedi are preparing to meet. When Nina finally arrives, she winds up basically paying a villager to get one of his riding mounts and charges onto the scene to warn them of what's going on just as the Sith Imperials pounce, which leads us into 
part four, the final piece here. We see more of the combat going on. We see the Imperial Knights and the Jedi having to fight together against the Sith that are ambushing them. We see that Rowan Fell winds up being evacuated from the scene after this major, major confrontation, but they have to leave Marisia Fell behind. And it's believed that she winds up becoming a prisoner of the Sith. This goes back to a conversation that Sind and Draco, or Antares Draco, had to have about, okay, if it comes down to it, your job is to protect you know, royalty within the uh, Empire, but which royal are you going to protect? Are you going to protect Rowan Fell, which is your duty, or Maricea Fell, who is the woman that you love? And Draco does stick to his duty, leaves with Sind, though he intends to go back for Maricea soon. As for uh, Cade, he winds up turning the tables on Malady, basically uh, forcing her to see the things that she is fearful of, uh, and eventually gets reunited with Jiraiya Sin, Fiona T also shows up. Uh, Wolf meets them there, having caught up with Fiona and Jiraiya. And unfortunately, Malady is causing things to basically uh, collapse. It's about to destroy the entire area once she's defeated and manages to escape. And Cade basically sends the others away. Basically, he's going to sacrifice himself if need be to save Delia. And in going to her and using the Force, drawing on the light side at Wolf's suggestion, not on the dark side, to try to reach out to her, save her from the Yuzhan Vong, and protect them from this, you know, collapsing of the area all around them, he finally dips into his real feelings about her and reveals that he does indeed love her. He is in love with her. She loves him. He's trying to keep her at arm's length, but she has always been the one who has essentially been, uh, in essence, his guiding star. He follows her. He stays with her. She keeps him grounded. She keeps him sane. Uh, and she stays by his side, regardless of all the times that he has given her plenty of reason to stay away. And after that profession of love, everything collapses, but he walks out carrying her, now freed of the Yuzhan Vong thing that's been put into her body, with sort of a force bubble around him protecting them. And he has made the decision that he's not a Jedi. He's not a Sith. He's what the Force has made him, which makes him the Sith's worst nightmare. And it is time not to just sit back and wonder where he goes from here and think about what he doesn't want to be, as we saw in the previous arc. Now he knows what he wants and what his intentions are. He wants to go to war. It's time to go after the Sith in sort of a final confrontation. Meanwhile, as sort of an epilogue, back on Korriban, Nil shows up to try to get the truth of what's happening with Krayt. Darth Talon is waiting outside the door, guarding it, essentially, but has not been inside, if not ever, then at least not recently. And she and Nil enter together, only to find that inside the stasis field, where we last saw Darth Krayt's apparent corpse, is his Yuzhan Vong so-called armor, the stuff that was built into his body system, but the actual human part? It's gone. So where is Darth Krayt? A lot of stuff going on in these issues, but again, setting up the final arc of the regular Legacy series. Yeah, a whole lot. Like, I was like, oh my god, there's so much stuff in each one of these that talk about. Uh, you know, going back to issue 43, when they have the flashbacks to Waylon when everything goes bad, I love that it's in a red tint. You know, I mean, this has a terrifying horror feel to it. You know, like when you see Cole with Wolf, you know, Wolf, get the boys into the ship, prep for takeoff. You know, like everything about it, it's just amped up. You're like, oh my God, they're screwed. And I like too that the last panel on that page, it's got Wolf with Cade and he's young and they're talking 
and Kate goes, those vines damage us bad, Master Sazen. We can't even break from atmosphere. We can't make orbit. Are we going to die, Master? No, not today, my apprentice. Hit the rear thrusters and burn those vines off. We can make it to the sky. The force will guide us. And then when he looks over again, now Cade's an adult. And he goes, and then what? Abandon the planet? Make a liar out of my father? Just let his dream die? And at that moment, you realize it's a dream, and that's when Wolf wakes up. But I, I like that, because at first I was like, well, why did he suddenly jump to, you know, why is he old all of a sudden? But that was like the cue, like, oh, hey, you're, you're dreaming here, bro. You're dreaming. Now, I had a question for you about the uh, Minirishi. And I know I'm saying it wrong, that, that the species, the forearm species there. Now, aren't they retcon? Didn't they get added somewhat recently towards the end of Legends in like the Boba Fett Bloodlines or a Darth Vader comic? This talks about them being native to Wayland, but in Legends, they weren't always native to Wayland until they were retcon that way, correct? Because I don't ever remember this species being on the planet with the Nagri. I honestly don't remember. I mean, I, this is not a species that I was particularly familiar with. I mean, I know that they show up within the Thrawn trilogy, so they've been around a while, but what was referenced about them and what their homeworld was, I, I couldn't tell you. It's been, you know, decades well, so what I see here, although mentioned throughout the Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn, they only appear in the final book in the series. Their uh, earliest graphic depiction is the Last Command source book. Okay, so they were there. They just weren't referenced much in the book. Okay, that makes sense because that's, that's how I was just like, wow, I don't remember ever hearing about these guys in the book. But, you know, it kind of makes it interesting, though, to think that these forearm beings were living on Wayland with the Nagri. I mean... You know, they must have been somewhat formidable that the the Nagra became so good at being stealth assassins. <laughs> uh, another thing, too. Well, yeah, but I mean, the, but the Nagri aren't native to Wayland. Oh, that's right. They're not. You're right. Right. Because Leia has to basically go to their home or the Hanagur or however you say it. So there may have been some that were on Wayland, mm. but they weren't native to Wayland. Yes, that's right. I keep forgetting that. Uh, the other one was the Zeltrons himself. I mean, when we're on Zeltron, there are species that I keep wondering, you know, are we ever going to see them make the jump to canon? And if they do, I almost don't think they should be quite the same way. I mean, we see the planet's beautiful. It's got all these great waterfalls, and there's like three of them. Well, three of them. One of them's Delilah, and they're throwing stuff. Smoochas, if you receive my favor. More smooches if you get mine. And then Delilah's like, Chica, he'll get them all. Watch. And they're all throwing like, they're like, Mardi Gras beads, basically. They're throwing them into the water and they're coming out with them. And of course, you know, when they come out, uh, Cade's like, let's go see which of these yum-yums these trinkets belong to. I'm, I'm just like, um, is it just me or does this seem completely degrading? I, I don't know. I have a hard time with the way <laughs> they treat the species. I mean, they're supposed to be a very sexual species, but... I, they just... But that's I mean, that's not even something that's new for this, though. I mean, they were treated that way when they were first created back in the Marvel series. Yeah. I mean, that was, that, that was sort of their thing, what they were known for. And then we met a couple of them, like Danny, that wind up running through the course of the story, and we get to know them more. But they're still... Like, in Danny's case, there was this extreme infatuation with Luke and how she reacts to anything going on with Luke and such that it very much mirrors Delia in this case. I and mean, it's... I don't know, it's it's a cultural thing. You got you got cultures that are that are tending to be very criminal element. You got the cultures that are very much based on logic. You got the cultures that are all built around banking, and now we got one that's all built around just sex and and, and like if you've got Jabba Desilijic Tiur, who is simply known as Jabba the Hut, <laughs> then you could have the Zeltrons like Delia Blue, better known as Delia the Slut. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's where I keep going with. Like, I'm like, if they ever make the jump to canon, I kind of hope they tone back on the ridiculous sides of it. Like, I, I don't mind, you know, if they end up finding their way into the prostitution field, so be it. I know George wanted to do that with 1313, but the weird... Patissa and all the extra stuff. Like I know Patissa's hot, but just the weird stuff. The yum yums. I'm like, really? Like, oh my god, that sounds so bad. Ooh, look at her yum yums. I'm like, ah. Oh, I think that though, that's a that's a Hatties thing too. I mean, a lot of this is Hatties slang, and it's less. I would say that's less about the Zeltrons and how they allow themselves to be treated, and more just the fact that Cade and Jiraiya have been in this you know pirates life, and they've got a lot of this slang that they use, and they're just kind of they're coarse guys at the time you know they they say things that would make jack sparrow blush yeah 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 locker room talk i guess uh oh oh he went there (laughs) he went there uh so would so if you took the zeltrons and the locker room talk and mixed it with the yuzhan vong technology and you had something that would reach out and grab you by the crotch and like cause pain uh, would that be the embrace of trump i'm sorry i'm sorry i I shouldn't say that um speaking of relationships I did find it interesting that all this time we've been seeing Morlish Veed and Nina Calixta being allies. Mm-hmm. We've seen them constantly working together, and she's a lot of times sort of a moderating voice for him when he's leaning towards an extreme. And yet now that he is the regent, now that he has power, he has very little use for her and is willing to put her in her place. You know, Let me point something out to you, Nina. We are not equals. I am the regent, and at some point I will be the emperor. You have your uses, but do not presume we are anything like partners. We never were. You will stay on Coruscant and make yourself useful. This is not open to discussion. You are dismissed. And I'm thinking, really? That's an that's an unusual change given how much you relied on her in the past. I mean, there's a level of, of you almost feel like the, in, it, it, almost like an insecurity in Veed that he's willing to have a partner. As soon as he gains power, he simply drops them. But I don't think it's because he uses people. From his characterization, it almost feels like this is someone who's not willing to suffer anyone to share his power because there's a fear that they could someday usurp him or become more powerful than he is. He has always struck me as someone who is conniving for power, but is also, I mean, it's very much like what what Palpatine said, right? You know, those who acquire power are afraid to lose it. And in essence, that's sort of the, the nature of Veed. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, the scene right above it really illustrates it, too. He goes, I am regent now, and I do not need to explain myself, my sources, or my decisions. And she puts her, har- her hand on his shoulder and pulls him back. That's another thing. I thought we had agreed you wouldn't accept any Sith deals until you and I had a chance to talk. I don't need your permission to act, Moff Kalexi. I saw a chance to get closer to the throne, and I took it. She leans really close to his face. I mean, he's angry, but she's really pissed off. You don't get it. You're now the public face of the Empire, and will be held accountable for anything, any atrocity that the Sith perpetrate. You're now a Sith tool, Morlish. I mean, she's really starting to put him in his place, telling him, you're a freaking idiot. And that's when he just lashes out. I mean, at that point, he's like, I'm done with you. Like, I've already got the power. I've used you for what I've done. I'm casting you aside like the husk you are. I I love that exchange, too. That was a great moment between the two of them. And I like how when it ends, like, it just, he walks off and she's just kind of like angry. And there's an up close of her just really pissed off. Uh, And the next scene goes to Bastin, which is probably like the one little deleted Easter egg here. The guy talking that says, son of a Rasnar Ganner, stop making this so easy. That's actually Master Snide. The uh, coloring screwed up on that. Uh, I was reading that up in the uh, Wikipedia that that was actually John confirmed. That was supposed 
supposed to be Master Sind in there. He was supposed to be there at that moment. Uh, but I like that they brought Aslan Ra back. They've got her armor has been uh, changed. The Imperials have uh, uh, Master Chalk. Master Chalk rebuilt the armor because they figure, you know, hey, a Jedi is not going to understand what an Imperial Knight needs. No one knows what an Imperial Knight needs like an Imperial Knight. So they rebuilt the armor. I like the fact that it's it's kind of given her back a lot of the humanity that she lost when Bantha Rock did what he did uh, because Cade wouldn't let him let her die. I mean, it seems like really Bantha, you kind of went the short route. You couldn't you couldn't invest a little more in the woman. I mean, you were worried about her mental capacities of going completely nuts and falling to the dark side, but you couldn't make her a better set of armor. You chintzy bastard. Oh. All right, so again, I think this is a relationship piece. As much as this is about, you know, the battle against the creatures on Wayland and the flashbacks telling us what's going on and the, the clash at Agamar that that puts the Jedi and Rowanfell's Imperials in the crosshairs of the Sith Imperials and all that and, you know, what's happening to Marasia, et cetera, et cetera. Even though there's a lot of action to this, I feel like it's it's the relationships between the characters that are really driving this. We've got uh, Nina and Morlish. Another major one, of course, is Trace Sind. And Rowan fell, right? So they're they're sparring. And basically, uh, Rowan fell says, you know, never did pull your punches with me, Sind. Not when we were apprentices together? Not now. I'd be no good to you if I did, sire. That's one reason I needed you to return, Trace. But not the only reason. And we get some, some actual revelation here from Rowan fell. No, it's not. The past seven years since my throne was taken from me have been corrosive. I can feel it. I heard about the Muir Talisman. Were you serious about using something so seeped in the power of the dark side? It really wasn't the power in the amulet so much as knowing what I could have done to the Sith with it. I intend to wrest the galaxy back from them at any cost. Using the dark side to defeat the Sith is too high a cost, Your Majesty. Imperial Knights look to the Emperor for direction. You personify our connection to the Force. You simply cannot go to the dark side. Even if it would free the galaxy? It wouldn't. You would become Krait and your knights would have to kill you. We are sworn to it by oath and by duty to our empire and emperor, all of us, including your daughter, including me. And I find it interesting that the oath that they take, because we talked before about whether or not they swear an oath to the force, whether or not it's to the emperor, and the, the hints so far have been this idea that it's to the emperor for the good of the empire, and that's why the imperial knights are sticking with Rowan Fell instead of with just the throne itself, which was taken by Crate. But at the same time, we find here that there's an element to it where it's not just a loyalty to the man and you do whatever he says. It's a loyalty to the man and to protect him even from himself, which I think is an important aspect of this that casts a, a more positive light on the relatively morally neutral, as we often think of them, Imperial Knights. They are a little more light side than we often give them credit for. Just because they have those white blades and just because, which are kind of Ahsoka-ish now, I guess, uh, and just because they don't swear loyalty to light side or dark side per se, it's all about the Emperor, doesn't mean they don't have a sense of good and evil and will lean and won't lead toward the light rather than the dark when it comes to it. Yeah, and I love the fact that, that Snide's the one that's really like, wake up! Are you guys, you guys are all so worried about what's going on in the galaxy that you're forgetting our mandate. You guys are slipping. You guys are falling to the dark. Like, like he is completely worried for the 
you know, the realm, basically. I love the fact that he's, you know, willing to do what needs to be done. He needs to yell at somebody that's above him. He is more than willing to yell at somebody, even if it's going to get his head cut off. I mean, because really, I mean, you know, yelling at the princess and the emperor. I mean, if anybody's going to want to say off with their heads, it's those two. (laughs) Yeah. Then we get, of course, the main emotional thrust of the story, uh, the main relationship at the heart of the story, as we get to the character revelations and changes for Cade, which, of course, is Cade and Delia Blue. And she's in the embrace, and she's basically about to die, as is Cade, because everything's crumbling down, and she's still got the creature in her with these tentacles lashing out, and Cade is going to draw on the light side to try to save her instead of the dark. And it's the first time he's using the light side to heal that way rather than the dark side. And when she tells him, basically, to kill her, and she literally says, kill me, his response begins this sort of mini soliloquy of his that gets to the heart of him sort of revealing his emotions here. Although it does have, I gotta say, while it has one of my favorite constant catchphrases, you could say, of legacy that in so many ways encapsulates the Cade Skywalker character. It also has one of the worst puns and most, you know, cringeworthy pun moments of all of legacy. He says, uh, when she says, kill me, he says, can't Meshla, Meshla being a, a hut phrase again, got you inside me deeper than that thing on your back is in you. Okay, a little bit double entendre there and poorly worded, but whatever. We take what is given. Let the force flow through me into you. And then he starts healing her. That Sith poison burns bad. Hate and fire burning bad. Love burns brighter, Blue. Your love keeps the Minoc together. You're the force that binds my life together. Through good times and bad, beyond love and hate. You loved me when it seemed like the whole galaxy was against me. Loved me when it hurt to love me. He's flashing back to him with Talon whenever he was in Claws of the Dragon at the time. Love me when I couldn't stand myself. Love me even when I tried to drive you away. True Blue, you know, the bad pun because that's her last name. Tried to keep you out, afraid of what might happen. Didn't want to hurt you, though I know I have. Can't pretend, can't lie, not anymore. Not to you, not to myself. You're what keeps me on course, the one constant star in my galaxy. You're how I find my way back when I get lost. All the best of me lies in you. He says, love you, Blue. And she says, love you, Cade. And that's when he's able to actually make the creature separate and fall from her back. They kiss. There's the explosion and everything collapsing. And then we, next time we see them, they're walking out in the force bubble. But I mean, it's, it's a rare introspective moment, really, for Cade. Cade has a tendency to want to blame everyone and a tendency to want to just push everyone away to protect himself, really. I mean, this is a guy who's psychologically damaged by what happened on Osis and the loss of his father and the Jedi and whatnot and and where he found himself at the time. So this is a big, big moment for him, probably even bigger than when we finally get to the point where he says, you know, I know what I am, not a Jedi, not a Sith. I am what the Force has made me, the Sith's worst nightmare, time to make war. That's an important moment for him to actually have a new direction, but I feel like the biggest moment for him isn't now he has a new path, it's he's finally opening himself. He's finally willing to trust the light side when someone else's life is in danger rather than dipping towards the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, in essence, again, Delia, a character who's been there since the beginning for Cade in this series, at least. Uh, well, when we met him at the seven years after Osis Mark, winds up being the catalyst, so to speak, for him sort of coming into his own and, and feeling like, as a character, he's more whole. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's the wake up to the light. I mean, he was raised in the light. He was steeped in the light. He knew what the light had to offer him, but he watched the darkness take out the light. And that took out his faith in the light. I mean, I, I like the comment he had with Wolf, you know, did as you said, master, tapped into the light side. Hate to say it, but you were right. And I think that that's, that's really it. It's like, you know, he wasn't willing to believe that the light could save him because he had lost his faith in it. And it wasn't until he got Delilah back, you know, the one thing that he loved above all else, and it was in the way that he didn't think was possible. He truly believed the only way to heal her was through the dark side. He, he saw it only as a tool, and he thought he could use it. And he thought because he saw it as a tool, all the fears that the Jedi had about the dark side, oh, it was just mumbo-jumbo, he didn't need to worry about that. He dismissed their fear, and he dismissed the light side, and therefore he was closed off to the, the power that the light side really had available. And once he embraced that love and remembered everything that was there... You know, we see that that very powerful moment. I, I think I, the thing I liked the most was we see the huge explosion and then they're coming out in that glow ball. And it's it's glowing. It's not like a solid ball. It's just it, I just I thought that was a really cool way that they drew it. Uh, you know, they could have made it a complete sphere that was solid, more like a, a shield. Uh, but they didn't. They were just in this glowing orb. You know, it, it wasn't a perfect circle. It was nebulous. Uh, and, and they were perfectly safe inside of it. I liked that Sin was, was bawling, uh, when he sees him come out. You know, like, he thought for sure they were gone. Uh, and they kind of, you know, when they have him meet that girl that was from Zenoma Sakat, you're kind of like, you know, oh my God, did they, like, is that it? Are they done? But, that whole time to make war, that's like that's like punch it chewy for me. Like, oh my god, you know, here we go. We're about to get crazy with this. But, you know, you would you talked about forgetting about everything that happened with Nina and, you know, being Morgan and who came first and all that. And the interaction in issue 44 where they're talking, uh, this is Cole and her and he goes, uh, "Is this who you fled me to become, Morgan?" Is, or is this who you always were? And she goes, this is who I am now, Cole. Please don't betray me. And they're, they're basically whispering, I would never do that. Your son misses you. Would like to speak with you. Would you like to speak with him? She looks over and she goes, your son, Morgan's son, not mine. I'm Nina Calixi. He leans over. You've made a new life for yourself, my love. But you can never fully escape who you were. No one can. Someday you will have to face Cade and tell him the truth. And that's the angle I keep. I just don't understand why she felt she had to do what she did. And part of what she did was help the Sith. I, I still don't quite understand what the hell her game plan was. Uh, especially when as everything goes forward and everything seems to be doing what she wants to do, she suddenly is like, oh, this is a bad idea. And I just, that, motivation, everything that's driving her in the past and in the present, I'm completely confused by. I do not understand what is motivating her in both timelines. It seems like she's a very selfish individual, right? I mean, she she leaves because it's her job and what she wants rather than staying behind and being a mother. So she's out of there. And then she takes up this new persona, which gives her all this power and influence and essentially protects her within the Empire. And now, you know, she's... It, it doesn't seem like she was necessarily wanting to work with the Sith, per se, so much as it was just sort of like what circumstances forced upon her. And she's been biding her time, helping in small doses where she can, only now she needs to act more overtly 
in order to keep everything from being lost. Like, this is someone who sort of realizes that in the best interest of the galaxy and herself, the Sith shouldn't stay in power, but I'm not going to risk my butt most of the time in order to stop it. It's a very self-centered perspective, which, of course, is also, I mean, we've seen throughout this series, in many ways, reflected in Cade. So, to some degree... True. The fact that Cade is willing to sort of open himself to Delia in this case, and this is the same arc in which Nina is finally willing to put herself really out there to try to save the good guys from the bad guys she works among, is in essence a change for both of them, or at least a, a similar direction mm -hmm. for both of them. So, yeah, yeah, she's always been sort of one whose, whose motives seemed a little nebulous, and it seemed like there was more to the story. And I would imagine if we had ever gotten a story set really around the time of when this era's main events really got going as opposed to it jumping that seven-year leap uh, that we probably would have gotten more detail on that. It would be interesting to see how she became Nina, exactly why, but, you know, now that Legends, not Legacy, but Legends, is sort of sitting up on the shelf, barely being expanded, I can't imagine we're going to get much in the way of actual mm. answers to those questions at any point. Unless it's just, you know asking the creative team and having them give us their thoughts on what they would have done yeah. had it continued. Kind of like going to... Uh, Karen Travis. Paul and well, I was thinking... Well, Karen Travis, I was thinking also Paul and Hollis Davids going to them going, wait a second, why is it that in your Jedi Prince series it looks like Han and Leia are about to get married when they really get married in Courtship of Princess Leia? Well, you see, we had intended for the Empire to disrupt the wedding and blah, blah, blah. Well, mm -hmm. that was your intention. But it never showed up on the page. So I'd be curious what the intentions were for Morrigan in terms of an origin perspective. Yeah, well, and I like the fact that when we get to Agamar, we see the Jedi and the Imperial Knights coming together. We got Fel there, and she, I mean, this is basically her casting everything aside just to warn them, hey, they know it's a trap, they're coming, they're going to get you. But the other thing, and you talked about earlier, was with Malady when she's talking with Skywalker. This, that scene totally reminded me of Dark Rendezvous with, uh, quite, with Dooku trying to lure Yoda to the dark side. She's like, I weary of your dance at the edge of the dark side, Skywalker. The edge is the funniest place to be. <laughs> you just don't know how to party. <laughs> no Sith does. It's why no one really likes you. No one needs to, she says. And he's having visions of, of Kray at Skywalker. And she sees visions of himself uh, striking down his dad. You have no discipline. Your will is weak. Mine masters yours. Here's the shape of your fear. You are filled with hate. Had the Sith not come, this would have been what you would have become on your own. I hate you, father, he says as he strikes down his dad in the vision. One way or another, you kill anyone that loves you. For love is a shackle. You know this to be true. And he's just like really angry, seething. And I love the shadowing of his face. He lies, he says. Are you ready, Cade Skywalker? Are you ready at last? If you do not embrace the power the darkness holds, the true power within you, your woman will die. You may fear the dark side, but you know it is stronger. And he's like, takes on this kind of malady. And then his voice twists. I know my fear. Let me show you yours. And at this point, he is like totally sithed out, uh, you know, total head to toe, Darth Maul style tattoos. His teeth are really nasty looking. He's got Sith lightning. He's controlling her beast. He goes, what you think is yours is not. What you created, you cannot command. You have wakened what you cannot master. And his eyes go totally Sith. And he says, fear me. He reaches out and grabs her by the throat. You are weak. You are lost. And he pulls her forward. And at this 
this moment, it's it's in the present. He's no longer in the vision. It's him actually doing what he's doing. And I want to believe that he is putting the major force suggestion on her. He goes, you will forget everything you have learned in this place. And then he lets go and shoves her back. And at what point she also does the same thing and says, away, get out of my head. But I just, oh man, that moment where he's just like, dude, this is on. I'm so done with you and I'm going to turn it on you. He does this a couple times throughout, but I really like the way that he's playing with Malady's mind. I mean, because we saw earlier in 44 where she's talking with Nil. I mean, she is scared. She's worried about what's going to go on because she wasn't born as this. She was brought into it later in the game, and she's seen what Krayat's group have done, the infighting and all that. That's why she's created this weapon. I thought that was a really cool insight into what was going on inside the One Sith. We don't get much of this beyond these type of references in Legacy itself, but we do get them earlier on in Le- uh, Legends when we were in, if, I'm not sure if it was in Fate of the Jedi or Legacy of the Force, where we see, you know, the one Sith hiding out and they're talking about Lord Cadus and him being a lightning rod to keep Luke, you know, focused on that and not Krayat's one Sith. So I, I just like the inner workings of what's going on with the Sith. I, just one of those things that really appeals to me. Quite true. Quite true. Then scenes like that, scenes like, you know, the idea of Cade killing his own father, even if the Sith had never shown up. The idea of, of sort of the Sith version of Cade dominating Malady's creatures and whatnot uh, very much always made me wish every time we saw something like that especially because they showed it for Cade frequently and he's one of my favorite in fact probably my single favorite Star Wars character it always made me long for like a mirror universe issue you know give give us Cade with a different kind of facial hair maybe a Fu Manchu kind of thing so he can be truly evil and show us you know sort of a a reverse it's a wonderful life (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) show us the evil side of things to show him why it's hopefully not a good idea which i guess is kind of a normal wonderful life kind of along the same lines but yeah definitely a story that is leading us in the right direction as we head towards the end it's giving us character development it's giving us situational development it's moving pieces on the board it's all that you would expect as you're gearing up for the end of a series although i must say that i was kind of surprised I'm trying to remember when it was that we found out, but it was right around this time, if I remember right, that we even found out that the series was going to end soon. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we eventually had the mini series. And part of me kind of shakes my head saying, you know, well, they could have just finished it without needing a miniseries to be a miniseries, just continue on for a few more issues. But it was a it was a dark horse thing. We're going to end on a big number, blah, blah, blah kind of stuff. Uh, but it makes it always feel a little bit, it almost feels like marketing. Because we get to that point, right? Uh, I'm what this. I'm what the Force made me. The Sith's worst nightmare. Time to make war. Coming soon from Dark Horse Comics, right? Because that's the name of the miniseries. No, totally. But yeah, I uh, one of my not necessarily one of my favorite stories from Legacy because there are so many, but some great moments in here that really stand out from a character development perspective, um, predominantly from Cade. So. Uh, really a cool one, and I look forward to us hitting those last two arcs because that, of course, will wrap up Legacy Volume 1. Mm-hmm. I remember when we get to the last page, you know, we see the armor. I was immediately thinking, oh my god, he's actually dead. Like The logic that I know of what we see from Force users and dying and their bodies disappearing, I was like, oh, he's he's gone. The shell is left. The armor's there. He's no longer, you know, in this realm. He's moved on. 
So I was kind of surprised when they went the way they did. Like I, I totally bought into him moving on, and that you know it was over and done with. Yeah, it certainly created a new question. That everybody, wait, what? What's going? How can he be outside of that? Wasn't it growing out of his body, et cetera, et cetera? So yeah, it set up an interesting new mystery as we went into the last uh, what, what amounts to be a couple of arcs, if you count war. Although it's in, it's funny to me that you notice as they walk in and they're, they're looking up, they're looking almost straight up, it seems like, to be able to see him in the stasis thing. And you got the armor up there, and based on the armor, if only his biological components have been removed, based on what we see in that last panel, doesn't that mean that every time anyone went in there to check on Crate, they were looking up and could see his junk? Yeah, you kind of have that feel, huh? Yeah. Yike. We got big balls. We got big balls. Let's just throw the biggest whoa, 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 balls at <laughs> Wow, that that took a turn. <laughs> so going into our covers here, we got forty-two uh, traitor among the allies, and we've got the uh, the weak way Jedi. We've got Garstazi on the uh, bridge. Some really weird expressions here. Not quite a fan of the art style. Don't mind the background of the star destroyers and stuff. We could tell it's on the bridge. There's some firework going on, but yeah, not quite a fan of that one. Uh, this one with the Nikto Jedi protecting Garstazi on the bridge. Uh, let me come back to that one last because that one has a bizarre moment, but I'm afraid of, of uh, if I drop the mic now, then, you know, who's, <laughs> who's going to want to hear about the other one? So I'll come back to 42. All right. So 43, we've got the failure of Cole Skywalker. This one I like in the aspect that it's an action shot, but I almost feel like this panel is actually something that needs to be in the comic. It doesn't feel bombastic enough for the cover. Uh, Cole's got a great pose. Uh, there's something about his outfit. Granted, it's the outfit we always see him in, but something about this cover, he feels very Marvel X-Men. Uh, and I just, I just wasn't quite feeling that. He, He's channeling Banshee, I guess, is my issue, and I'm not caring for that. Fighting some Vong uh, life armor. He's got Wolf Sazen behind him. Wolf still got both arms, so of course we're in the past. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it feels like an action shot from inside. Yeah, it definitely feels like a panel, which makes sense because it is Jen Dersima doing uh, the artwork there with Brad Anderson along with her. It's one of those ones that it's it's an action shot, so you kind of wonder like what the momentum is within it. I find it a little bit odd with the way that Cole is leaning, because it almost looks like he's about ready to fall over. There's no way he could still be standing at that angle, unless the shot itself is at an odd angle. But you're right, his clothes scream, not just Marvel's X-Men, but like 1970s X-Men, right? The open (laughs) shirt thing, the spandex-looking stuff. And you called out Banshee. I always look at him, and I see the sideburns, and I immediately think Wolverine. Like, like, use the force, bub. Yeah, there was an alternate version of Wolverine uh, from another dimension that was blonde, blonde, red hairish. So 44 is it's back to that style that I don't quite care for. I, I like to call it the dark time style. Uh you know, I, I like the fact that we've got the Vong creature, the Vong spawn, dragging Jarell off and stuff. I like that it, it's a scene from inside the comics. It says monster on it. It does raise up an interesting is it question. Though? Is it though? That's not really a scene from the comic. Well, no, that was what because I was going to say. It's not a Vong spawn that takes Jiraiya and drags him away. That's Fiona T. So is Fiona T somehow in the Vong stuff with the four arms here? Or are they just making stuff up as they go along for this cover? Well, they're making stuff up to a point because when Delilah gets captured, Cade's the one gets drug away by one of these creatures and then no, dropped off. No, he's not. Wait, I'm pretty sure it's, he was. It's Deliah who gets carried away, and it's Jiraiya and Cade that are left, and then Fiona finds Jiraiya and saves him and then tries to come back for Cade, and Cade's already woken up and left. Uh, At no point is there a Vong spawn carrying off Jiraiya or Cade. 
And even then, it's not dragging by the arm, it's that they've got Delia over the shoulder of one of the, the creatures, I believe. Well, it is weird because, okay, okay, so it's in issue 44 itself, and I got it open up, and when they're on the ground, you're right, one of them is carrying off Delilah, but there is a giant monstrous one above all of them growling, which makes no sense. Then you see the, the eyes of one that's in the background as they're walking off with Delilah Blue, so you almost get the impression that that girl is inside the armor. And so, then you see her grab... Jiraiya and pull him off, and you can't tell what if it's her hand or a Vongspong hand. So, I mean, it, it, that's the thing about it that always confused me. It was like, I always thought that they more of those Vongspong things drug him off. They, it's not quite clear enough, so I was always like, and I was I was thinking about that when I looked at this cover, I'm like, oh, we totally c- missed talking about that when they were oh, drug off by the weird Vongspong right. and never mentioned again. You're right. We When we do wind up meeting her for the first time, he, lo- he wakes up, Jiraiya comes to consciousness, sees a creature like the one that's on the cover stepping forward, says, get back, and you see the claws. And then the next panel, though, she's completely out of that, saying, don't be alarmed, despite my appearance, I'm a friend. But there's nothing about her standing there that gives any indication she was a shapeshifter or wearing something different or that it's fading away. It's just all of a sudden it goes from, ah, to her looking like her, which to me felt like, I guess I interpreted it as this is a creature working with her or something, and it's just like, whoa, whoa, don't kill it, you know, we're friends, but no, she's saying, despite my appearance, I'm a friend, so unless he doesn't think that a human woman looks like a friend, yeah, that's, 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 I guess that is supposed to be, that's so bizarre. It's a Nuglith masker, but they forgot to point that out to any of us, I mean, because that it? was, it, it's gotta be, right? I mean, she looks it, like everyone else. Just for the face, not for the whole body. Well, there's the Ooglith mask, the Ooglith cloak. There's a couple different ones. One was a full body one that they had with different outfits. And, does, and, and if she's wearing an Ooglith thing, is it giving her an extra pair of arms? I would assume so. Yeah. Okay. Sure. That yeah, that probably could have been a little explained. more clear. It's not a necessary plot point, but in order for it to make sense on the cover, probably could have stood to be explained. Yeah, and, and that was just it. The cover brought that back. I was like, oh yeah, I was going to mention that when we were covering that, but when we were covering that, I felt like it was so small and trivial. <laughs> All right, so did you have anything else on 44 yourself? No, just that, again, I mean, I usually like Chris Scalf's work. I'm not a big fan of that particular cover. I like the the if that is Fiona T, the look of the creature, but it didn't really seem like it resonated with what we saw uh, inside the issue. Uh, I'm interested in your take on 45, because I've always thought of this as sort of, this is Malady's Kardashian moment. <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting you put it that way. I have a hard time between 45 and 46 as to which is my favorite of the two. 45 is the cover they used for the trade paperback. It, it does have Malady. She's got a a very Britney Spears with a snake kind of thing going on with the Yuzen Vong uh creature i i don't think this is an amphistaff or if it is it was it was once and is now something more devastating it's definitely creepy as hell i like that aspect of it i like the angle with her uh you know it doesn't quite look like her from inside i think it's more the toning of her skin she looks a darker red inside the comic and this it's more muted uh but i i i I do enjoy this one i have a hard time saying whether or not i like this one more than 46 I don't know. I, th- I think it works. It's a good cover, but at the same time, it because of the way that she's holding the creature, it almost looks like a feathery boa that she not like a boa constrictor, but an actual boa like for clothing that she's wearing there. So it, it screams like 
where's the paparazzi? <laughs> you know, this this is the red carpet on the for the Wayland Oscars kind of thing. So it, it's it, was all, it always struck me as weird. Now on Wayland, we've got Malady wearing her priceless Yuzen Vong coral snake. Oh, great! Now it's Malady's sex tape. <laughs> Sabotaged by the Sith. Who leaked this tape? Was it you, Nil? <laughs> uh, issue forty-six. I, I like I said. I keep leaning towards this one. It, it's again. It's another one where they use the word monster, which is kind of funny. I didn't realize that. This is the second time we've got the word monster on the cover of the monster series. Although this time it's got a monster like font to add that it's a monster. Delilah Blue on the cover. It's no longer regular Delilah, as if you couldn't figure it out by the evilness of her face. I like the computer-like graphics that they used on this. It, it gives her a crispness. Uh, you see on her hands, there's like some some scaling going on. It almost looks like what's attached to her back is taking over her whole body. I got to admit, though, there's something about this pose. I find it sexy as hell. <laughs> he loves those eel things. He really does. I, don't, I think this is probably my favorite cover of these because it's even though it seems to present her as if she is the villain, as opposed to a victim here, because she looks like they're drawing her almost as if she's like a vampire coming to kill someone. The way they have the creatures coming out of her back and whatnot, it makes for kind of a just a cool image. And the fact that they're, you know, essentially growling or, or whatever, hissing, toward, in one case, towards the viewer, uh, makes them especially creepy looking, which mm-hmm. is something that you get somewhat on the inside, on the interior art. But it's more pronounced here when they're able to be more, as you were saying, kind of crisp. They got that Tremors-like feel, the the little tongue leaks out at you. You're like, oh, damn! Where's Kevin Bacon when you need him? <laughs> so, I go back to 42. And this will probably be a little bit of an overshare, but I can't help it when I see this cover, okay? We have Garstazi, and we have, what is his name? Uh, the Nikto Drock. And... They both have these very scaly, lumpy kind of of faces going on because one is a Duro, one is a Nikto. Okay, fine. And you get this weird look on Stasi's face, like, kind of going on. Uh, And you have kind of a growl going on for the Nikto. But I look at this, and my initial thought was, it seems like these guys are both made out of lumps of turd. (laughs) Then in essence... They're basically poo formed into these faces because they look like they're mumps. They're like lumps of mushy stuff. But then it struck me a few years back. Now, understand, I'm someone who has IBS, uh, which is irritable bowel syndrome, plus lactose intolerance. So I am sadly more familiar with using the restroom and and variations of poo that are painful or not than most people would ever be. And thankfully, (laughs) other people don't experience some of the pain that I experienced. Like, my wife banned me years ago from eating Nutty Bars, even before we were married. Banned me from eating Nutty Bars anymore. So, as we got to the point where we're getting towards Christmas here, she bought me a thing of Nutty Bars, which I hadn't had in years, and was like, because I'm being nice, here you go. I ate four of them to one night to the next morning, and had a sharp stabbing pain immediately in my side. And I remembered how painful it was to eat Nutty Bars in the past. For some reason, I cannot eat them without excruciating pain. Holy crap. And, and be, because of what it's doing in my digestive system, I guess. But there was a point that was even worse. Because I love sunflower seeds. 
But see, I like crunchy sunflower seeds. So when I eat sunflower (laughs) seeds, I eat them in the shell and don't spit the shell out. Oh, I used to do that. Oh, God. They don't digest, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So if you eat enough of them, the next time you have to go and relieve yourself with some number two, the shells are in it, stabbing you all the way out. And I couldn't help but look at this cover and think, Garstasi is the regular poo. And ooh, that Nikto, ooh, that's after the sunflower seeds. Oh, embrace of pain. <laughs> Probably an overshare. But perhaps, and perhaps it's a warning, don't eat a bunch of sunflower seeds and eat the shells because they will come back to hurt. Um, but I can't look at this cover without thinking that. And I look at the Nick toe and I'm going, oh, oh, so much pain, so much pain. Uh, and uh, I work at Subway, so we started a new bread with sunflower seeds called Harvest Bread, and it's a wheat loaf. <laughs> Just, oh, God. oh, my God. See, for me, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking the only way you can make that shape with their lips, because both of their lips top and bottom, have got each edge out. And the only way you can do that is if you are trying to go back to the 1990s Forrest Gump and reenact Bubba. Bubba's lips. That is, that's the only way, when I'm making those lips that Bubba has, that's the only way you can get what they've got. So I'm trying to wonder what in the heck is going on that's causing that reaction. Hey, we got some shrimp! <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're, they're smelling each other, because they really are made of feces. <laughs> uh. Oh, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, probably an overshare, but uh, needless to say, I will never eat Nutty Bars again, and I will never eat sunflower seeds with the shells ever again, (laughs) and issue 42 of Legacy will serve as a great reminder of that to me. (laughs) Ow. Uh, Well, overall, I don't think the comic was as shitty as... Oh, you went there. As cover 42 brings to Nate. Oh, man. Uh, I genuinely, I enjoyed this one. Uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, I, I think it would be hard to grab this as a trade and just jump into this and get a good feel for what's going on. I think you'd be really confused. Uh, I think this would be one you could maybe pick up like every other one of and grab, you know, one of the ones before this and then jump into this and be like, have a better idea what's going on. I do think that this one, you know, if, if you are getting towards war, you know, that's your goal is to get to legacy war, uh, and you're skipping some, this is not one to skip. I think you should be grabbing this one, reading this. This feels very much like the star by star to dark journey. Uh, you know, the, the rogue one to a new hope, if you will. I mean, I, I dare say the catalyst to rogue one, it feels almost essential if you're trying to get to war. Yeah, it's definitely not one that you could skip, especially if you've been following these characters at all, because it is some important development there for Cade, and it does sort of set the new direction. In essence, you could sort of say that what happened in Vector, which is, again, a very selfish thing, he's going after Crate not to save the galaxy, but to get Crate and the Sith off of his back. Now it's sort of going after them as a whole. It's taking from Vector him sort of having a question of, well, what direction does he go in now? to eventually getting to the, well, I don't want to go this direction, to now saying this is the direction I do want to go in. He's taking a proactive role here, and I think that's an important thing to follow with this series. If there's any of these you could skip, it would be the first issue, 42, Divided Loyalties, because it doesn't have nearly the impact that Monster does. Yeah, well said, well said indeed, my man.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Don't forget about that wonderful Catalyst contest that was announced at the beginning of this episode. Go back if you want more details. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, and we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. We do it quite regularly. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't put us the odds. But now we're going to get emails with people saying, man, I did the same thing with Sunflower Seeds. I'm so glad you're telling people. <laughs> oh, balls. Crate balls. Crate balls of fire. It's a crate upskirt. <laughs> oh, 